Come, Holy Spirit, now and fill the preaching of your word with your presence. Lord, Holy Spirit, you alone can convict us of sin and of righteousness, Lord. You're the one who touches our heart and brings us into a place of repentance and a desire to accept to receive the truth of God's word. So, Lord, we cry out to you this morning. Uh, have mercy on this, your gathered people. Have mercy on me, your preacher. Let the words that I speak be your words for your people. And, Lord, for all of us, may we receive the truth of the scriptures so that it transforms our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you want to follow along in your Bible this morning, the Pew Bible, the page number is 939, 939. We're going to be talking about that passage from Romans chapter 1, verses 16, all the way through Romans chapter 2, verse 1. And you need to know, that as, you, as you turn to that in your pew Bible, that this is the first time in 33 years, 33 years of ministry, that I have preached this entire passage from Romans chapter 1. And the main reason for not preaching this entire passage from Romans chapter 1 over the last 33 years of ministry is that the Revised Common Lectionary doesn't include it. What is the Revised Common Lectionary? Well, a bunch of, of uh, mainline churches got together and decided that they would put together a three-year Bible reading program that would be used throughout these various churches, and uh, they, they omit that passage. This passage gets omitted because it's just way too controversial, way too confrontational. It's uh, too too ideologically radioactive. It's way, way too triggering for our precious, fragile, modern ears to hear. But oh no, not the ACNA. We have a new lectionary, and there it is. It's right there in front of us this morning. But the reason that it is avoided, I think, many times is because in Romans chapter 1, we hear about God's wrath. We hear about God's wrath. And then we hear a catalog of human depravity that offends our modern Western sensibilities because uh, things that we celebrate as a society are here in this passage pointed out as being sin. In fact, we brought friends with us this morning to church, uh, and we heard we were going to be hearing from uh, Romans chapter 1. We might be regretting that right now, but uh, have no fear, have no fear. Actually, I am very excited to preach this passage of Scripture because the entire section we just heard from Romans is about, and this is important, it's about gospel. It's about good news. It's not about bad news. It's about good news. And this passage of Romans is really a part of a longer argument that Paul is making about the gospel. So Paul begins his argument with a statement of his major theme in this letter. Now, as I read those two verses, we're going to look at them in just a second, verses 16 and 17, it makes me think about how in the 19th century, as people were composing a lot of piano concerti or concertos, uh, and these were being performed in homes, in larger homes, and people would invite their friends and neighbors, and then the, the artists would come and would sit down at the piano to perform this new piece of music in these kind of posh, uh, posh homes in Europe and some in the United States, and people would be uh, eating their horse de ovaries, 
Um, no, I mean, our hors d'oeuvres, that's right, hors d'oeuvres. They would be chatting. There would be the sound of conversation going on. And to get everyone's attention, there usually was scripted into those pieces of music uh, a clash of chords at the beginning, a thunderous chord at the beginning. And that was sort of the wake up, get, you know, get, pay attention. We're about to have some music here. And then that was followed immediately by the statement of that of the theme of the piece of music that was going to be performed. So right at the beginning, you got the major theme of that piece of music. It was a, a melody that was going to be performed. That's what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 1. He is stating his major theme, and it's right here in chapter, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For in, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This passage alone and everything that follows contains so much good stuff, it's hard to know where to begin. But here's what I want to focus on this morning. Paul is talking about the gospel of salvation. Paul's talking about the good news. And that's what all of this passage is about. And the rest of what we hear following those two verses, we get a statement of what he thinks about the gospel. All that we hear after that explains why we need the gospel of salvation. And that being the case, here's what I want us to do this morning. I want to start with the why, the why of why we need the gospel, and then at the end we'll briefly restate the gospel as Paul proclaims it in Romans. So why do we need the gospel? Well, listen again to verse 18. If you're following along there on page 939, Romans chapter 1 in your pew Bible, uh, it says this, we need the gospel for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice that very first word in that verse. The word there is for. In other words, because. The gospel is for the reasons that Paul is going to state following that statement of for. And the very first thing that Paul speaks about here, what comes right after that? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. So we need, we need the gospel because we need to be saved from the wrath of God. Now we need to just hover over that phrase, the wrath of God, for a moment. Because I am pretty sure that the very notion, the very idea of God's wrath and our state as being under the judgment of God the, the, that has absolutely no emotional cachet, no grip on the plausibility structures of this generation. We just don't hear much about the wrath of God, and when we do, we don't really care that much about it. Here's what I mean. Most secular people that I encounter on a day-to-day -day -day basis have the following reactions to the mention of the wrath of God. Uh, reaction number one goes like this, and this is the most likely reaction, is that they have absolutely no sense, all right, absolutely no sense of the reality 
of the wrath of God. They have no fear of judgment by an almighty God at all. It's just not even a category for people living in our, in our country today. People fear climate change. People fear their political foes and what they may do to them. But there is zero emotional sense of the fear of the judgment of God, as far as I can tell in our culture. The second reaction to the mention of the wrath of God is if there is an acknowledgement of the possibility of the wrath of God or the mention of the wrath of God, the second reaction is visceral rage. Rage against the very notion that I may have to give an account for the actions that I have done, that I would have to give an account to anyone, especially to God. And what's more, the things that Paul says merit the wrath of God are the very things that we congratulate ourselves for in our culture as signs of the moral progress of our age. And so our response to any idea of the wrath of God often is one of rage. So people may not have a concept of the wrath of God, but plenty of people have a sense of personal and corporate wrath towards God. Not, the wrath, not fearing the wrath of God, but a lot of wrath directed towards God. But here's really what Paul says the wrath of God is directed towards in this passage. Here's the object of God's wrath, and there's actually going to be good news that emerges out of this. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says that um, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness, this is verse 18, uh, all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Uh, the sense of the verb there is you, a continual effort of keeping something pushed down. Men who suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Here's, here's, here's the problem Paul describes. And it's this, look. We, we, you and I, instinctively know that there is a God because of the nature of creation itself. We can just, all we have to do is to get out and go outside to some beautiful spot, and here's what happens in our hearts, right? Here's what happens, is that we go to a beautiful scenic spot where we see the beauty of God's creation in all of its complexity and harmony, and we're looking out at this wondrous, splendorous vista, and immediately something in our spirit reacts to that, and, and there's a delight and a sense of awe, and then, then this happens. We have a sense of gratitude in where we feel like we need to say thank you to somebody. Have you ever had that experience? 
we're impressed with the wonder of God. It is as if the experience of the beauty of God's creation that points to the creator, that that experience is incomplete until I finally tell somebody, thank you for this. That is what is programmed into the human heart, which is not a denial of science or anything like that at all. It's just that all of nature bears witness. And the more you know about it, the more amazing it becomes, the more alive with the presence of God it becomes. So we, we see that, we instinctively know that, but then we, listen, we actively reject that truth and like trying to keep a beach ball submerged in a swimming pool, we writhe and contort to keep pushing that truth under the water of our consciences. Blaise Pascal said in his Pensee, he said, men despise religion. They hate it and fear that it is true. Men despise religion. They hate it and fear that it is true. So we push it down, push it down. American philosopher Thomas Nagel states that impulse of suppressing the truth very clearly. He says, and he, Thomas Nagel is, uh, he's, uh, 82 years old, and as far as I know, he's still an atheist to this day. He says this, he says, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. This is what he says, ready? I want, I, I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. Listen to what he says. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. So my guess is, this is Nagel, my guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a, a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism, scientism and reductionism of our time. One of the tendencies it supports is the ludicrous overuse of evolutionary biology to explain everything about human life, including everything about the human mind. So it, what are we talking about here then? What is all of this? This desire to, that there be no God, this suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. This is the human sin, and this is the core human sin, of rejecting the God who has revealed himself, rejecting the God who has revealed himself in the natural world and whom the human heart is designed to respond to. Don Richardson, former missionary to Irian Jaya, uh, tells the following story. He says that after he spoke at a San Jose church, a young Kenyan man named, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, English is my first language. I'm having a hard time with it. A young Kenyan man named Joseph introduced himself, and Joseph had attended a seminary and worked with the Mission Overseas Crusade. And Joseph's story, listen, it illustrates the power of God's self-revelation, everything that Paul is just talking about, the power of God's self-revelation in nature. And here's what he tells. One day, when he was seven, Joseph's grandfather, Arap Sumbei, had taken him by the hand to show him something from a hilltop. He said, look at everything you can see. The grasslands, the river, the lake, 
zebras, the sun, the hilltop, your body and mine. Who created all this? Who made all that you see? Joseph told his grandfather that he didn't know, and his grandfather replied, Cheptalel did. Cheptalel did. And went on to describe him as the spirit who created everything. You can't see him who is everywhere. He sees you. He knows your thoughts before you think them. If you do what is good, he will be pleased with you. If you are evil, evil, he will hold you accountable. Where did, where did Joseph's grandfather come up with that? That didn't come from the reading of Scripture. He hadn't read the Scriptures, we know, from the further story. No, it was God. Everything that you need to know, in other words, at least everything you need to know to bring you under condemnation, God's, God's infinite power and His divine majesty has revealed in the natural world, and it spoke that to Joseph's grandfather. It spoke that to him. And because, though, Listen, because the human heart cannot worship, cannot not worship something, you and I are made so that we are worshipers, and the human heart cannot not worship something. And because of that, if we are rejecting the God who has revealed himself in nature, we exchange the worship of God for the worship of something else in creation. Even, listen, even if that something else is our own intellect. I make an idol of just how smart I am. Humans, the Bible says here in verse 23, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Humans exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here is, here's the point that Paul is making. Ready? Is that the opposite of worshiping the God who we see revealed in the testament of nature, the opposite of, of worshiping and loving that God is not atheism, but idolatry. The opposite of worshiping God and loving God is not atheism, it's idolatry because you and I are made to worship something. We're not going to leave a void there. We're going to stick something in the place where God was when we removed him. So that's what the wrath of God is directed towards, this rejection of God and the embrace of idols. So what does the wrath of God actually look like? Because I wanted to know. Paul said the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And I'm looking around for some wrath. Where is the wrath in this passage? He says it's revealed. Well, here it is, and let me point it out to you. Paul actually tells us what God's wrath is three times in this passage. And if you're following along, look at verse 24 with me. Look at verse 24, Romans chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. That's right. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Here is what the wrath of God, this is critical to understand. This is what the wrath of God looks like in Romans chapter 1. 
Is it tidal waves? No. Is it earthquakes? No. Is it plagues of locusts? No. Is it coronavirus? No. No, in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is him saying this to you and me. You want to reject me and follow your own disordered desires and passions? Go for it. I won't stand in your way. Have all you want. I give you over to your lusts completely. And that is the wrath of God. You see, brothers and sisters, and I have found this over and over and over in my life as a believer and in my ministry, is that the number one way God judges you and I, this is, you need to know this. You might even want to write this down. The number one way that God judges you and me in this life, in this life, is to let us have exactly what we want that is not him, have exactly what we want that is not God, and then to experience the consequences of what we have craved. God's way of judging us in this life most of the time is to give us exactly what we want along with the consequences. And as we follow our unholy desires, they continually lead us astray from God into ever greater and greater unrighteousness. And that's the progression that we see. It's like going over a series of cataracts in uh, Romans chapter 1. And God gave them up, and God gave them up, and God gave them up. That whole catalog of human sin and depravity Paul gives us is the consequences the, it's the, the consequence, the judgment for rejecting God and replacing him with our own homemade pet gods, our own idols. You know, it's, uh, it's, like, there, it's like the consequence. Okay, so uh, there, think, think about the law of gravity. The consequence of uh, saying, um, I'm going to jump off of a tall building without a parachute or a bungee cord or anything, I'm going to go down to the Wachovia building and go take a flying leap. The consequence of that is uh, terminal velocity resulting in an abrupt stop. And, uh, and you know what? We, using Paul's logic here, we would call that consequence, ready? The wrath of gravity. That's the wrath of gravity. You see, here's the rub. God has ordained a moral order in the universe. This moral law is just like the law of gravity. It is baked in. So when we turn against the moral order of the universe and follow our passions and disordered loves, it ultimately destroys us. That's the wrath of God. Here, go, go do that. Take that flying leap. But here are the consequences. And typically, unfortunately, in our hardened, sinful hearts, and I've seen this in my life early on in, in my young, younger days, listen, the typical reaction in our hardened, sinful hearts as we reap the results of our immorality is not that we are driven to repentance. That is not the first response. In fact, I have to say, unfortunately, it's still because of my doggone hard head and pride, not typically my first response when God chases me. No, it's not our first response when we, when we reap the results of the immorality that we've experienced and, uh, 
participated in. We aren't driven to repentance, but instead we wallow in self-pity and then we lash out in rage against the universe. In other words, we drink ourselves blind and then we blame God for the hangover. Proverbs 19 verse 3 says this, a person's own folly leads to their ruin, yet their heart rages against the Lord. And all of that, all of that sad story is exactly why, brothers and sisters, we need the gospel. The power of God for salvation. We are under God's wrath. We have been turned over to be enslaved by our own evil desires and passions with their ensuing consequences. And there is only one remedy for our state, and here it is. Here's where Paul's argument for our need for the gospel comes to completion. It culminates, actually. It goes on for three chapters. And if you want to, you're in your Bible there, just flip over a couple of pages to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And this is where Paul is going to bring his argument for our need to the, for the gospel to its completion. Ready? Romans chapter 3, verse 23. <clears throat> Paul writes this. For all have sinned. How many is all? All, all is all, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if everybody's sinned, who's in a place to judge anybody else? Hmm, I don't know if I could do that. Wait a second, that's why we read Romans chapter 2, verse 1. And you, old man, who are you to judge? For you who are judging do the very same thing that you're judging. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. Here it is. Here's the good news. Here's good news, church. Justified by his grace as a gift. It is a gift. That's why it's good news. We are so far beyond saving ourselves. We did jump off that building. There's no, we need Superman to swoop in and save the day. We need that grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, Jesus is God's way of redeeming us, of purchasing us, purchasing us back, buying us back from the consequences of our sin, our rejection of God, our immorality, which ultimately will lead, in, lead us to death. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, God's justice is satisfied. The word there is propitiation. I know you used it five times this week in a sentence, didn't you? No, you didn't. I didn't either. But essentially it means an atoning sacrifice. That God's justice, his righteous wrath has been satisfied as Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, offers himself in obedience to the Father and offers up his own life, a propitiation by his blood, and we, it says to be received by faith, and that means we trust and receive this good news. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. Praise God for his divine forbearance. Here it is, brothers and sisters. We have all sinned, but we are saved when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. That means we trust ourselves completely to Jesus as our only hope for deliverance from wrath, 
and slavery to sin. That faith that transforms us and connects us to God, the faith that transforms me into, and we talked about this last week, but to make, to make me a new creation, to give me the new birth, the faith that transforms me and connects me to God can best be described as, listen, it's so simple, it's trust. Now, I did not write this illustration, but I can read this illustration. So this is, it's so good, I wish I could say it was mine, but it's so good. Listen, I love this. This is, this is the trust illustration. Imagine that you are on a high cliff, all right, and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you, as you fall, is a branch sticking out of the very edge of the cliff. It is your only hope, and it is more than strong enough to support your weight. How can that branch save you? If your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you are lost. In other words, there you are falling off the cliff. You look over at the branch and you say, you know, as I calculate the tensile strength of that branch and the materials that it's rooted in and the points of contact between the branch and the root, I am convinced that that branch is completely capable of holding my weight as I fall. And you don't reach out, you're just as dead as if you didn't believe it would. You're lost. If your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you're filled, I'm not sure that that thing's going to hold me, but you reach out and grab it anyway, you will be saved. Why? And here it is, listen, it is not the strength of your faith, it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Praise God. I don't have to work myself up to perfect faith. I just need to grab a hold of the branch. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. This means you don't have to wait for all doubts and fears to go away to take hold of Christ. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you have to banish all misgivings in order to meet God. That would turn your faith into one more way to be your own Savior. Working on the quality and purity of your commitment would become a way to merit salvation and put God in your debt. It is not the depth and purity of your heart, but the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf that saves us. Thanks be to God for the branch. Brothers and sisters, I am so glad that I got to preach Romans chapter 1 this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.